0: If you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to turn in it to the book of Haggai. You're wondering, who is that? Where is that? (laughs) So to find it, go to the end of your Old Testament, work backwards through Malachi, Zechariah, and Haggai will be the next two-page chapter, or two-page book in the Old Testament. We're taking a short detour in our series on Ezra and Nehemiah because the events of Haggai take place right where we left off last week. Um, If you've ever come to Haggai in your Bible reading plan, and you wondered who is this person and what's this book about, today you're going to find out. So let's start with a recap of where we are in the Ezra series. The Jews had returned from exile in Babylon with a commission from Cyrus, King of Persia to rebuild the temple of God in Jerusalem. God Himself was behind this. He stirred the king to send them out and fund the whole mission. So they go there, they get as far as laying the foundation of the building, and then the work came to a screeching halt because adversaries arose and opposed the building and made them afraid to continue. So they stopped building because of fear. Now, that much is understandable. It's hard to keep going if you feel like your life is threatened somehow. But is fear the dominant reason that they stopped building for as long as they did? Because we learned at the end of chapter 4 that the work on the house of God ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. That works out to 16 years that nothing happened, no building going on. That's a long time for there to be no progress on the one thing they came to Jerusalem to do. It would be like paying somebody a commission to paint your portrait, and then after a little bit of work, the, the artist puts away the canvas, puts away the brushes, and then you never hear from them again. And you're wondering, what happened to that money I gave you? Uh, what, <laughs> what's going on with my project? It was like that with the Jews. They had God's money, so to speak, funding from the king to do this building project. No work is happening anymore. And it begs the question, why haven't they started up again after 16 years? Well, what happened next is that the Lord made a phone call to his people, we might say, a phone call to get them going again. So enter the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. I'll read from Ezra 5, verses 1 and 2. Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So the Lord got the attention of his people through Haggai and Zechariah with the result that they began to rebuild the temple again. And so that's what the books of Haggai and Zechariah are about. This is what God is saying to the people who are stuck, who are off track in this renewal. And he's like, here's what I want you to do. Here's what I want you to know. Here's what I want to tell you so that you'll get going again. That's what those two books are about. What we'll do this morning is listen in on what God had to say in the book of Haggai, um, we could have gone to Zechariah. That's a much longer book, and it's got all kinds of like harder-to-understand stuff. Haggai is kind of short and to the point, very accessible. We're going to go there. We're going to answer two main questions. Why weren't they building anymore? And what did the Lord say to get them back on track? And those questions have relevance for us today because what the prophet said to Israel, God is saying to the church to us today because we also can stall out in our spiritual growth, in our renewal in the image of Christ. We can stall out in faith-filled obedience and no longer pursue the good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. According to Ephesians 2.10, we can get off track in participating with the Lord in building His church. So this speaks to us as well. So before we go to the scriptures let me just pray and ask the Lord to speak to our hearts and minds. <clears throat> we come to hear Lord together as your people called by your sovereignty to hear what you have to say to us this morning. We also deal with similar things that the church throughout history has dealt with. We need the same grace from you this morning. And so help us again Lord to see where we've maybe fallen short in something, but also the grace, the vision of glory that awaits us as we go forward in faithfulness for what you call us to do. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read from Haggai, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say, The time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough to drink. You never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You do... You Excuse me. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm, and he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Why weren't the people building the temple anymore? The first answer is because they had grown apathetic about doing it. They lost interest. They didn't have enthusiasm for it anymore. It dropped off of their list of things to do. Here's how we see that. The Lord describes their thinking in verse 2. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now that was objectively not true. The whole reason the Lord brought them back to Jerusalem and gave them funding to do it was to build the temple. It was time to rebuild the house of the Lord. They had everything they needed to do it. As we'll see in a moment, they lived in paneled houses. Those are nice houses, Um, but so resources wasn't the issue. And yes, the adversaries had made them afraid to build when they first got going, but that was 16 years ago. What's the reason now? Well, it appears that whenever someone had the urge to get going again, the the reply was always, the time has not yet come. Instead of the saying, there's no time like the present, it was always, not yet, not yet. It's like... What the wall says on the side of Joe's Crab Shack over on the frontage road, it says, free crab tomorrow, right? (laughs) Because as long as it's always tomorrow, it's never today, and so you never have to give away free crab, right? (laughs) The time has not yet come, not today, but tomorrow, and tomorrow, and tomorrow, and you know tomorrow never comes. That's why this thing is never going to get built. Isn't that so much like human nature? (laughs) We enthusiastically start out on some venture, but if we get shot at when we stick our head out, fear makes us stop and pull back. But then over time, fear isn't the dominant emotion anymore. We begin to make peace with not trying again, with just letting the dream die. Maybe it wasn't such a great idea in the first place. These are the things we tell ourselves. Maybe this is a job for somebody else. Let's just put this on the back burner for a while. Someday down the road, we'll get to it. Or the issue could be an idealistic view of how it was going to go. Um, But then it became difficult, and the actual doing of it was hard, and we decided maybe this isn't really worth it. When Christians do that, it looks like pulling back on our zeal for the Lord. You might have attempted to share the gospel with someone, and it went badly, and so you think, I'm never going to do that again. Or you commit to a discipleship group, we're starting over again, it's going to be great, and then after a few times, the drive, the tiredness at the end of the day, the management of the kids, and so forth, it just gets to be too much work, and we start to pull back. Or you want to make some progress on a sinful habit that's pulling you down, but but the transparency that it's going to take, the exposure to somebody else who can help you, that just feels too intimidating. And so we pull back. And then we get used to being pulled back. And that becomes our norm. We live with the way things are. We get apathetic about something that we should be enthusiastic about. Well, welcome to the world of fallen human beings. (laughs) Those are things we struggle with because we have limitations, we have weaknesses, we have failings. But as we'll see in the next passage, God has no weaknesses and he is with us to get us through everything. We'll come back to that later. But there's more going on here than just apathy. Another reason they weren't getting around to building the temple was because they had become preoccupied with the cares of the world. The Lord exposed their hearts with a question in verse 4. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, a paneled house, that was a nice house. That was better, better than the base model Just mud bricks, kind of, you know, a a shelter that you could dwell in. This has panels. This has extra stuff. They put some money into this building, some time and effort. They've made it a more comfortable place. This might be the three-bedroom house with two baths in the suburbs. This is a better house. But notice this. The Lord is not questioning whether it was okay to live in a house like that. This is not a knock on having nice things. The question is about priorities. You say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord, which lies in ruins, but you do think the time has come to build your paneled houses. In other words, your money and your efforts are being consumed with attending to your own comforts at the expense of God's agenda and God's presence in your life. They've become preoccupied with the cares. Their priorities are mixed up. That's a temptation that we can relate to. Just living takes up a lot of time and energy, doesn't it? (laughs) And it's easy for that to just dominate our hearts and minds. Children need our attention. Houses need upkeep. Cars need repair. Thank you, Dan, for pointing that out a few weeks ago. We've got finances to manage. We've got jobs to go to. We have legitimate goals for improving our life situation. We also need to find rest and recreation. None of that is wrong. All of it's faithfulness with the responsibilities God has given us. But it gets twisted when those things become our priority instead of the Lord and His agenda to bring renewal to us and to others out there who still need to hear from Him. Child-rearing can become the idolatry of having perfect children. Financial management becomes taking refuge in money rather than in God. Rest turns into indulgence in endless entertainment. We build our paneled houses instead of God's house, visibly seen on this earth as the church. 2 Corinthians 5.15 tells us what our priorities would be if they're in the right balance. And this is a genuinely satisfying life. He, that is Jesus, died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. Our priority in life is to live for Christ, enjoying His grace for ourselves and helping other people to experience it with us. And that doesn't mean you can't have a nice house or nice things. It's a matter of what has your heart. Is it the Lord or is it the cares of the world? If it's the cares of the world, then don't be surprised that you don't ever feel fulfilled or that random things keep happening to frustrate your happiness because that's what these people were experiencing. In the rest of the passage, we learn that the Lord was actually blocking the success of their endeavors to get their intention. He says in verse 6, you've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, and you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. He who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Those are all expressions of what one commentator called fruitless prosperity. It's putting all sorts of efforts into making a comfortable life for yourself, but you still aren't comfortable. You still never have enough. Besides that, the Lord was even working through seemingly unrelated physical events to frustrate His people's pursuit of worldly things. In verses 9 and 10, He says, "...because of my house that lies in ruins..." While each of you busies himself with his own house, therefore the heavens above have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and what the ground brings forth on man and beast and all their labors. God sent a drought as a direct result of their focus on themselves. He changed the weather So that he would get their attention, so that he would dry things up, so it didn't produce what it used to, and it was threatening their prosperity. And that was God's direct intervention in the world to get his people's attention. God can still do that in our lives. Not every single bad thing that happens to us is the direct result of unfaithfulness on our part. We've got the book of Job to prove that's true. Job was wrecked, and it wasn't his fault. So we can't assume every random thing that's hard is a rebuke on our unfaithfulness. But when hard things happen, even if they're seemingly unrelated to anything about us, it should at least get our attention and our consideration. Is the Lord trying to say something to me about my life? Is there something that needs to change in me? The loss of the job, the constant car problems, my basement getting flooded with a broken water line. Is there any message in that? And that leads to the main application of this passage for us. Because after pointing out their apathy and their preoccupation with the cares of the world, the Lord said in verses 7 and 8, "'Consider your ways.'" So think about it. Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified. Consider your ways. Think about your life and where it's going and what's the fruit of it. Is it formed around the Lord or not? Is he more beautiful to you than anything else? Does your use of time reflect that? priority, or your giving, or your reading diet, whatever frustrations you're experiencing in life, whatever seemingly random things are coming your way, those are opportunities to consider your ways and examine your heart before the Lord. Is He your only hope in life and death? Psalm 139, 23, and 24 shows us how to pray about this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. That's a good prayer in every hard thing. To make God your center is actually to pursue your joy. He's the one who renews us, (laughs) not our paneled houses or whatever else we're putting our time or our money or our thought life into. I was struck by the example of David and Mandy England, our missionaries in ESAN. They were here a few weeks ago. We had lunch with them afterwards. And I was asking David, I was sitting across from him, I was like, why is it that for centuries the Esan people have been overlooked in missions? Why is it that they're an unreached people group? Um, and he said, well, I mean, one of the big things is it's just really hard to live there. You wouldn't get that necessarily from their newsletters, but they go without tons of stuff. They don't have great access to health care. They get very little fellowship with other believers. It's hard to live there. Even people in Thailand don't want to live there um, just because they don't like that region at all. And so I said, so what is it about you guys then that you're able to make this work? What keeps you there? And he said, before we got into missions, we decided that Christ was going to be enough for us. Christ would be enough. No matter what we have to give up, Christ is enough. And you could tell just by their demeanor that they were joyful. They they didn't have the concerns, half the concerns that I have in life. They were freed up because Christ really gives renewal. He is really enough. That's the joy that the Lord wants for all of us, and it comes by prioritizing. Is He really your hope in this life or not? And He's hope enough. Now, that's the challenge part of the passage, challenge part of the message, because sometimes we need to be challenged. But now we turn to the encouragement. Fast forward to chapter 2 of Haggai. What happens in between is that the people hear us preaching and they're convicted of their ways and they get back to building again. They came and worked on the house of God in the sixth month of the year according to the end of chapter 1. But then a new problem arose. So let's read from Haggai chapter 2 to find out what it is. We'll read 1 through 9. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet Says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So after a 16 year hiatus, the work starts up again and they work on building this thing for about a month, starting to go up. But now the dominant mood of the people is not apathy, it's not preoccupation with the worldly concerns, it's despondency. They're in a state of low spirits. They've lost hope that this endeavor is ever going to really amount to much. You see it in verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? At this point, there's only a few very old people left who actually remembered what Solomon's temple looked like. They remembered its former glory. They remembered the massive bronze columns in front of that old temple. Their weight was beyond measure. They were so impressive, they had names. They remembered the big bronze altar where all the sacrifices were made. They they remembered this enormous bronze basin uh, filled with water where the priests would wash and it sat on 12 carved bronze oxen. It's is ornate. They remembered the ornate wooden doors going into the sanctuary with all sorts of carving on it, big, heavy wooden doors, overlaid with gold. And inside, though very few were allowed to see it, was the sanctuary with palm trees and other engravings on the walls, all covered in gold from floor to ceiling. And the most holy place, where was the golden ark containing the tablets of God's covenant and 15-foot-tall golden cherubim on both sides of it. If it still existed, this would be one of the great wonders of the world. Everybody would be paying to go see this thing. It was just amazing. A few of them remembered it, and their memory guided the vision of the builders as they sought to bring this back to life again. But a month into the project, they looked at what they were building, they compared it to what it once was, and it seemed as nothing in their eyes. No bronze pillars, no gold shining everywhere, and especially no Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place. So they lost hope. This is never going to be anything like the glory days. Their mindset is captured by the prophecy in Zechariah 4.10, who said they were those who despised the day of small things. I think that's something we can relate to in our Christian experience. We get started on some venture, For the Lord with enthusiasm because we have an ideal in my mind. This is how it should be. This ministry, this child I'm raising, this person I'm counseling, and our ideal is always idealistic. (laughs) We imagine the ministry to really take hold and the church is going to grow in numbers, or this child is going to grow up and be an astronaut. (laughs) This person I'm counseling is going to be transformed before my eyes. Reality seldom matches our idealism, and then our work seems like nothing in our eyes. Or for older believers like myself, our temptation is to become nostalgic about the past, about a time 40, 50, 60 years ago. We can remember when our culture was much more Christian in its orientation, at least if not in genuine faith. And God seemed to be moving in powerful ways. And then that memory becomes the standard that we're trying to recreate. When I became a Christian 40 years ago, faithful Christ followers held prominent positions in all levels of society and were respected. Good Friday was a national holiday that my secular company celebrated. Billy Graham packed stadiums with preaching the gospel for weeks, and thousands were being converted. I was converted in college at a time when there was a wave of the Holy Spirit washing across the U.S. Every campus organization, every Christian campus organization, was bursting at the seams with young believers, eager to know the Lord, eager to share the gospel. I got swept up into that. It's very much not like that today, is it? So it's easy to look back on that as the glory days, get nostalgic, pine away for the past and for the glory that is gone, and then get despondent about the present state of affairs. We can look at this church, and I'm prone to this, and think, you know, we're so small in the big scheme of things, how can what we're doing ever make any difference in the world? We lose hope if we despise the day of small things. But the wisdom of Ecclesiastes reminds us not to go there in our thinking. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. (laughs) That is not wisdom, to be looking backwards. Wisdom is to look ahead. Wisdom is to believe God and what he says in this passage Because in this passage, he says this in verses 4 and 5, Be strong, work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you, when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst, fear not. That's where we get encouragement to keep going. Do you realize what the Lord is saying there? He refers to the covenant that he made when Israel became a nation when he brought them out of slavery in Egypt, crossed the Red Sea into the wilderness, eventually to the Promised Land, he says, I made a covenant. I made you my people. A nation was birthed. This nation church was birthed. And I made a guarantee that I will not leave you. And that's still in force, is what he's saying. Even now, even when your numbers are diminished and you all went into exile and now you're back and you're 8% of what you originally were, Got those numbers from Dan, the mathematician, a while ago. Even though it looks like this is nothing, this is nothing like it used to be. We're just little. But I'm still here. This covenant is in force. My spirit is in your midst, he says. I haven't left you, I'm with you in the same divine power that I displayed against Pharaoh. I'm with you with the same mercy that I, re- that I displayed to your forefathers. I'm with you as much now as I was, with, I was with Solomon and David, this amazing temple that you so much wish we could have again. Well, I am the same God who was there, and I am there, and I am still here now in your day of small things. So don't be afraid, he says, be strong, get to work. I'm in this with you. It's the same encouragement the Lord gave the disciples and to the church when he ascended to heaven. He said, go and make disciples. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The problem with comparisons is that we can always find something depressing about how we're doing compared to our ideal whether that's rebuilding a modest temple in Jerusalem by a diminished people, or whether that's starting up a new ministry year in a small church. If we compare ourselves to our ideal, to other churches or other people, we are always going to find something that could be better. But that's to put our hope in appearances rather than in promises. If we rank the significance of what we do by the size of it, by the apparent success of it, things that we can measure, things that we can rate on a scale from 1 to 10, then we're going to be despondent. But we have something better to hope in. The eternal, unchanging promise of God to His people, I am with you, declares the Lord. My spirit is in your midst. So just do the next thing in faithfulness, and he'll take care of the rest. We can't comprehend or predict the ebbs and flows of God's redemptive plan in the world. Sometimes he attends ministry with great blessing, like the wave that I was swept up into in college. And other times he withholds blessing. There are days of small things, and there are days of large things. But the one constant is that God is always with us with the same power and mercy that He's always had. He's the God of small things as much as the God of the large things. So, are you faithfully laboring as a single in your job in a God honoring way? Are you faithfully laboring as a mother of children? Are you faithfully laboring in serving roles in the church, in sowing seeds of the gospel in somebody's life, in helping a brother or sister get through another week in hope? If you're doing that, it may seem like nothing in your eyes. But faithfulness is not nothing in God's eyes. Do not despise the day of small things. Because in God's economy, the small things are what He uses to bring about the great things by His Spirit. Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts, from Zechariah 4.6. Whenever I'm tempted to despondency over the apparent smallness and insignificance of what I do, or what our church does week by week, I go back to the story of Ruth and Boaz. You have two of the most unimpressive, ordinary people just walking faithfully with the Lord. You have a bachelor farmer. You have a widowed, impoverished immigrant woman with a mother-in-law to take care of. They marry. They have a son. That's the sum total of their story that we know about. But what came out of that day of small things? Well, their son had a son, and that son had a son, and that son was King David. At a time when there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their eyes, God was bringing His king through small things, through ordinary faithfulness. And down the line from that king came the king of kings, the son of David, who would bring salvation and peace. Who are we to say that what we're doing is insignificant in light of realities like that? There is no reason to despise the day of small things. Because whatever we do in faithfulness to the Lord is working into a divine plan that is leading ever onward to glory. And that's the promise on which the passage ends. The Lord promised the discouraged builders in verses 7 through 9, The treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now it might have seemed to the Jews that this promise was being fulfilled about 500 years later. Because there would be a renovation of the temple that took 46 years. And King Herod the Great is the one who finished it. He made it into an enormous building again. It dominated the city of Jerusalem in the time of Jesus. But that building wasn't the fulfillment of this promise because that building was torn down again in AD 70 when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. So no, the ultimate fulfillment was beyond that physical building. The latter glory of this house was yet to come and it is going to come or it would come through another temple that was destroyed and raised up. Jesus said in John chapter 2, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus is the true meeting place of God with man, which is what the temple represented. When His body was destroyed on the cross, it atoned for our sins, the sins of all who put their trust in Him. And when He was raised, He was raised for our, for our justification that we might be declared righteous before God and be accepted into His peace, His shalom, all of His goodness and blessing. Jesus is how we come together with God in Peace. And because He did that on the cross, because the temple of His body was destroyed and raised, then the ultimate fulfillment of this latter glory comes to pass. We have a picture of it in Revelation 21. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations will walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. That's the latter glory of this modest temple that they were building. It was the very presence of God Himself and the Lamb. There's no need for the physical building anymore when you're actually in the very presence of God and the Lamb. And that's what the new heaven and new earth promises is going to happen for all of us who know Christ. We will see God face to face, we will worship Him, all the nations who have been rescued by the blood of the Lamb, will worship Him. The the glory will all concentrate there. This redeemed humanity thriving and worshiping God, that's what was way off in the future back in 500 B.C., or whenever they were building this thing. They couldn't see it. All they could see was like, we got 10 feet of walls. It looks like nothing. I don't know where this is going or why this matters, and God says, "Well, ho, ho, wait till you see what I have planned. <laughs> this thing here you need to do because we still need this physical building, this place where it signifies God's presence. But I'll tell you what: there's something way better coming down. God, the Lamb, dwelling with man in a new world. Glory forever." That's where all this is going. That's what we're a part of as we're even building this church. Even though it may look like nothing in our eyes. If what you're doing faithfully in your homes, faithful in your workplace, faithfully here, if you're just doing that faithfully, it may look small. It's not small. Don't despise the day of small things. God is using those things that you do in faithfulness to bring us one day closer to that latter glory where we'll enjoy it together. And that's where you'll reap the rewards of your faithfulness. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this great vision of what's to come and works back into today. You are present now. You've made a covenant with us. Your spirit remains in our midst. And so thank you for that. Help us to just plug away and to do it in faith, not just duty, but in faith for that day that's coming and that everything that we're doing matters in your great plan. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.